0: We're in Jude, verses 5 through 7, God judges rebellion, if you would stand for reading of God's Word. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness and judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As you know, when you talk about God judging rebellion, this is not a happy, happy topic, but it's part of what we're going through here today. But you need to realize that God will judge anything in his creation that is out of line or out of step with him. The theme of of, uh, Jude is this, contend for the faith, fight for the faith. Now, last week we saw that there was a huge problem that Jude was addressing. He was originally going to write a a letter about their common salvation, but he changed it to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once once for all delivered to all the saints, and that there were people who had crept into that body of believers, crept in stealthily, undercover, through the side door, some people say, and they were they were polluting and they were contaminating the body that existed within that in that locale. And remember, we went through counterfeits are difficult to spot. A good counterfeit is difficult to spot, and they look like they sound like the real thing, but they are false. And we had false ministers. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, so his ministers and masquerade as. As ministers of righteousness, so they sneak in undercover. Now, what is the individual's protection? Well, we know that you need to be a Brian. What is the church's protection? Well, we talked about elders being raised up to protect the body of believers. But we also want to know that sound doctrine, sound biblical teaching, is essential for us to be able to spot the counterfeits. So that's that's what we, that was the main focus: sound sound doctrine, sound teaching, the truth of the word. And if you are really immersed in the truth of the Word, it is not likely that you're going to be stumped by the counterfeits. Something's going to happen inside of you. And you're going to go, whoa, something's off with this. And I'm going to compare what you're saying with the Word of God. I might not know exactly where to find this, but I know it's off, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to search the scriptures to see what it, what you're saying is true. And it all starts so subtly, so undercover, so, so uh, slyly that the enemy works. It's one compromise after another. Just a little tweak, just a little compromise. Let's just do this, and it won't be that big a deal. And then something else happens, and then something else happens. And remember we gave the illustration of the dominoes falling, one after another. And before you know it, you have a whole church that's out of whack, starting with one compromise. And remember, the shepherd's responsibility is to shepherd the flock, is to protect the flock tend the flock, nurture the flock, guard the flock, encourage the flock to grow. And we had a guy named William Still that we quoted last time. And he compared sheep with the goats. Remember, there's a sheep and goats judgment. The sheep are the genuine, the goats are the false, and they are separated at at the end times during the judgment. And he says this, The pastor is called upon to feed the sheep. He is called upon to feed the sheep even if the sheep do not want to be fed. Now, look, at there's a lot of sheep that don't want to be fed, and they want to hear entertainment, and they want to hear comic hour, and they want to hear whatever they want to hear. They want to hear a sermonette. They don't want to hear something for 30 or 40 minutes. They want to get in, get out, feel good. That is not the shepherd's responsibility. The shepherd's responsibility is to feed the sheep. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of the goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it in goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Now, that was a wise word right there from William Still. Sound teaching is essential. Every generation, every generation from the very beginning of this thing must contend for the faith. And this is our time. This is our generation. We're at it. This is our responsibility. This week, we have three examples of divine judgment. God will judge rebellion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, and Holy Spirit, please teach us the things that you would like us to know, and as always, 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 may we apply what we know and what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Just an introduction. Divine judgment is, again, it's not a happy subject. This isn't something you'd go through your catalog of sermons and go, oh, I'm going to win friends and influence people by divine judgment. That's not what happens. But when you go through the word line upon line, you can't skip this stuff, so you have to go through it. But I think it also is important. It is important for us to go through. So it's not happy, 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 but it is true and will happen. Now, when thinking about divine judgment, when thinking about de- ju- divine judgment, remember the heart of God. Always, always, always remember the heart of God. First Timothy 2 4 says this God desires all men to be saved and come a knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of God. All men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the, the truth. You're very familiar with these. Second Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, and all should come to know the truth. In Ezekiel 18.23, and he repeats this in 18.32, listen to these words. This is the heart of God. This is the the Old Testament God, which, by the way, is the same as the New Testament God, but people try to separate and say, no, they're the same God. Listen what he says in, in Ezekiel 18, 23 and 32, very similar. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? No, he says, no, says the Lord God. I say that he should turn from his ways and live. That is the heart of God. Turn and live. Turn and live. He does not judge capriciously, whimsically. He takes a long time, like the 400 years to judge the Canaanites and the Amorites and all those ites. He takes a long time. He is long-suffering. The heart of God to humanity is turn and live, turn and live. Lamentations 3.33 is a great verse for this. For he does not afflict willingly from his heart, that's what it means, nor grieve the children of men. In our text today, we will see that God will judge and God does judge rebellion within his creation. He cannot wink and he cannot ignore sin and rebellion. He is holy and sin is an egregious thing to God. And he's going to give us three examples. He's going to give us the examples of the nation of Israel rebelling against God in unbelief and not going into the promised land that God promised them and being frightened by the giants there. We're going to discuss that. We're also going to discuss in Genesis chapter 6, the angels who left their order. And they did not believe God when they, God says, stay in your order. And they didn't believe God and what their consequence was. And then we're going to see what happens to people that decide to live a lifestyle any way that they want to live with Sodom and Gomorrah. And how God will judge a, a, a lifestyle that, that is opposed to God. Judas telling his brethren undergoing persecution. They are spread throughout the Roman Empire, and they're being influenced by the Roman Empire and what's going on in the Roman Empire by the, 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 the faith system within that empire that is counter to God. They're being influenced by that. They also had false teachers that they're being overwhelmed with. And our God is telling those people, contend for the faith. Do not fall for the traps. Do not go into unbelief. No matter what these people are telling you, God will judge rebellion. That's the message. In verse 5, we start out with example number 1. God will judge a rebellious people. And this is his nation. This is the nation of Israel. This is the apple of his eye. This is he, The nation of Israel is called the wife of Jehovah. This is an intimate relationship with, with he has with these people. But he will judge them because of their unbelief. Listen to this, verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, who did not believe. Now, we need to go to the backstory story with this. So the backstory story starts with Moses, but I would like you, while you're listening to me, turn to Exodus chapter 14, Exodus chapter 14. Now, I will give you the backstory, and then we'll pick up a few verses in Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10. Now, as you're turning, because of unbelief, Israel did not enter the promised land. Exclusively because of unbelief. And remember, the story starts in Egypt, 400 years in captivity, 400 years under Pharaoh's whip, 400 years of being slaves. And God raises up a man, his name is Moses, and he introduces himself at a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses is, five times God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and do this. Five times Moses resists. And in th- chapter 3, verse 13, it is the final time, listen to this dialogue, Moses saying to God, oh my Lord, Please send by the hand of whomever else you may send, anybody but me, God, send them. I mean, that's <laughs> that was the heart of Moses. And God said, go. And Moses said, no. And then <laughs> and then God insisted, and Moses no longer resisted. He got his brother Aaron to go along with him. But God says, you're going to do this. And that was it. It was a theta complete. Now, look at how many times does God call us to do something, and right initially, the first thing out of our mouth is no. Hey, when God says to go, you go. You don't blow him off. You go. So for 40 years, Moses was trained in the court of Pharaoh to be a leader. Then he killed the Egyptian was caught and ran for his life. He ends up in Midian. In 40 years, he's on the backside of a desert learning how to shepherd and forget what he learned in Egypt. In his last 40 years, he was called by God to lead a nation. Now, remember this. Egypt is a picture of the world. The world, the nation of Israel was sequestered in the world. But in Goshen, separated from the Egyptian people, God knew what he was doing when he separated those shepherds who were detestable to the Egyptians in Goshen. But still, Egypt is a picture of the world. Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. And both put people in bondage. And God warns Pharaoh ten times through the mouth of Moses, Let my people go. And then he puts plagues on them. And the nation of Israel saw this, by the way. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, hail, boils, darkness, death. And guess what? If you put blood, the Passover lamb blood, on the lentil and the doorpost the death angel would pass over you, and the firstborn of everything in Egypt died except for those protected by the blood of the Lamb. Sends a message, doesn't it? We are protected by the blood of the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Pharaoh finally relents with this last death of all the firstborn, And and then he lets the people go, and you know what Pharaoh does? He changes his mind, and he chases the nation of Israel. Two million people hightailing it through the desert. He waits a period of time, and he goes, oh, no, there goes all of our free labor, and he goes to chase them. And he's got chariots, and he's got his army, and they are armed, and they're going to bring these people back, and they get to the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, the nation knows Pharaoh's coming. They see the dust in the desert. They see the masses of people coming. And they are trapped at the Red Sea, and we pick up the dialogue in chapter 14, verse 10. And then when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They had a moment where they did what was right. A moment, a moment, but notice what they did then, verse 11. Then they said to Moses, God's representative, because there was no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Isn't it amazing? They're set free from slavery and that first obstacle comes and we want to go back and we're going to blame the leader. Blame the leader for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. And actually that word serve can also mean worship. the Egyptians then we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. That is God's word to us continually when we're dealing with the world. We're dealing with the spirit realm that tries to overwhelm us. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see no more forever. The Lord will fight for you You shall hold your peace. You only need to be still. The Lord will fight for you. Remember that. Remember that. Now, you know the rest of the story. They're trapped by the Red Sea. God puts the pillar of cloud that separates. Now, this is another miracle that the whole nation sees. The pillar of cloud is there, separates Pharaoh's army from the people of God. And then Moses lifts up his arm and God separates the Red Sea. Remember, it's not Moses separating the Red Sea. It's God separating the Red Sea. Now, just picture this. A hundred feet, some people surmise, of water piled up, dry land straight through the middle of it, and the nation of Israel makes their escape. Protected by the pillar of cloud. Cloud moves, people are safe on the other side. And what does Pharaoh do? A hundred feet of water on each side. No one's ever seen this before. Dry land. And here goes Pharaoh in his chariots right through the middle of that stuff into the trap. And then God says, okay, enough. Moses puts his hand down. God brings the water over and they die. Pharaoh and his army die. And you know what happens? Onto the shore washes up Egyptian soldiers armed with swords, weapons. And now you have an armed nation going into the promised land. And the people of Israel see this. They see this. Turn over now to Numbers chapter 13. It didn't take them long to complain. Just anecdotally, three days later, they're at Meribeth, and the water is bitter, and they're complaining about God and not being able to have have water. It doesn't take long for us to complain. They spend a year preparing to go into the promised land. God has provided them with manna. God has provided them with clothes that don't wear out. God has provided them with water. God has made every provision for them. Now they're at the precipice of going into the promised land in Numbers 13. God chooses, says, choose one leader from each tribe. Twelve leaders go into the promised land. Now they have a mission. They have a mission. God tells them specific. Tells Moses to tell them: See what the land is like. Numbers thirteen eighteen. Whether the people there who dwell there are strong or weak, few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Whether the cities that are inhabited or like camps or strongholds. Whether the land is rich or poor. Whether there are forests or not. And be of good courage. Be of good courage. Why? Because God is with you in this. Be of good courage. God is with you in this. And bring some of the fruit of the land back. Now, this was the harvest. This was the season of the first ripe grapes. So what does it do? The recon mission goes on the mission. And when they go into the land, what do they find? They find the grapes are just lush and the pomegranates and the figs. But, oh, they also saw the descendants of the Anakin. And they saw the giants in the land. And now they're trembling with fear. But yet they see the the. the, the, the produce in the land and what it can produce. They come back and give a report. And they say in verse 28, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the dead descendants of the Anak there. Now they are not at this point, they have not sinned. They're just making an observation, but they're telling the whole nation, the Anakin are there. Oh no, don't go there. The Anakin are there. But the sin happens in verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said this, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone as spies of the land devours its inhabitants and all the people who saw it are men of great stature. Then we saw the giants, the Anakin came from the giants there and we were like grasshoppers in their sight and now they're refusing to go. And they turn on Moses, and they want to select a new leader in chapter 14. God wants to kill the people because they have refused to believe him after everything he's done for them. Ten plagues, all the provisions. He's demonstrated who he is to this nation, and these people still aren't believing. And then God says, okay, the consequence for this, for your unbelief, is that everyone 20 years and older will die in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb are going to survive this thing. And so that's the backstory to this. Jude says this. Jude says this in verse 5. He destroyed those who did not believe. Now I want you to camp on that. He destroyed those who did not believe. Remember, when you refuse to believe God, when you refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his provision for, for rescue from this planet and from the sin life that we that we live, when you refuse that you're going to end up being destroyed. Now, the word destroyed is interesting. Hang in there with me. It's apollemi, A-P-O-L-L-U-M-I, and its root, root, root word is apollyon. Now, we have, maybe you have not run into this word, but apollyon is the angel to the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9. And the scorpions are released to sting the people who do not have the mark of God on them in the book of Revelation, but they can't kill them. Now, with that in mind, listen to what this definition is. Destroyed is a polemi, and it's not the loss of being, but well-being. Describing that which is ruined and no longer usable for its intended use, it is useless. The gospel promises everlasting life for the one who believes. The failure to possess this life that the gospel has guaranteed you, if you believe that Jesus died in your place and you receive the gift of salvation, you will be saved. That's the gospel message. The failure to possess this life will result in utter ruin and eternal uselessness, but not a cessation of existence. That which is ruined and is no longer usable for its intended purpose. Now, what is. Our intended purpose. Every human born into this world has an intended purpose. I suggest to you it's this: to know God and to serve Him forever. That is our intended purpose. You might think your intended purpose is to make it through college and be, make a lot of money and get your new car. I mean, when I got out of the, when I when I went into anesthesia school and we were at our graduation and people were saying, "What is your goal in life?" and you would have you couldn't have. I want to get a Ferrari. I want to get this. I want to get that. And I was right in there with him. I wanted a house or something. I don't know what I said, but it, it, it's always something. Look, our intended purpose is to know God and to serve him. That is, that is what we are here for. The question is this. Who is destroyed? Who is destroyed? Then and now, it is those who do not put their trust in God. They have unbelief, then and now. For those who reject God's rescue, they will be judged. God will judge unbelief. Of course, the greatest unbelief is rejecting Jesus Christ. And remember, a person that rejects Jesus Christ doesn't just do it one time. Oh no, the Spirit of God comes time and time and time and time and time again. And they reject Him over a Everything that God can throw at the person. They say, I'm here. I'm here. Your rescue is here. That is what happens. But eventually, God will judge rebellious people. Secondly, God will judge anything in rebellion as creation. Example number two is this. God judges rebellious angels. Now, he's given, given these people examples. False teachers are coming at you. They are unbelieving. This is what happens to unbelievers. Even angels, and the angels, verse 6 says this, and the angels who did not keep, let that resonate within you, did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Now, while I am speaking, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we will see what these angels are like. Now, the question is, God judges rebellious angels. Now, which angels are these? These are the fallen angels. Now, why were they judged? Because they did not keep their proper domain. That word domain is this. It's arche, and it means their order, their rank, or their place. These fallen angels have an order, a rank, and a place that they should be and they can act in. They left their own abode. That is their house, their habitation, the area where they are permitted by God to function. They can only function in a prescribed area. They can't just do whatever they want. The demonic realm has boundaries that are set. Demons have, the demonic conduct is limited by the sovereignty of God. Now, these fallen angels went against God's prescribed order and suffered the consequences. Now, what did they do? Well, that gets us to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 4. Now, this is not without controversy. Everything hinges in these verses on who are the sons of God. And I will give you the three views that people have and why I think two of those views are wrong. Number one and most popular are the sons of Seth that cohabitated with the daughters of Cain. The second view are human kings wanting to build up harems and the third view are fallen angels. Now let's develop it from there. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives of themselves of all whom they chose. Now, when you look at Scripture, you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So the sons of God, we see three times in the book of Job, the sons of God are angels. Job chapter 1, verse 6, Job chapter 2, verse 5, and Job chapter 38, verse 7. These are speaking of angels. Then he says in verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So what that is saying, there's going to be 120 years, and then God is going to be through with it. They got 120 years into the flood. There were giants on the earth in those days. Now my question is this: If this is the if this sons of God are, are Seth from the lineage of Seth, why all of a sudden are they producing giants? They didn't produce giants before. Now they're producing giants. Doesn't make sense. Just an, just a side note: There were giants on the earth in those days. Also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, think about where we're at with this. Fallen angels took wives that was prohibited by God. We see in Jude, and we see in 2 Peter chapter 4, these angels that are confined in in Tartarus are the ones that left their abode. They left their domain. They went into an area that God had had said, no, you cannot go into that area. So, why did they do this? Why did these angels do this? Why did they have the hubris to think they could do this? The answer is this. Now, this is a supposition, but I think it's a pretty good supposition. To pollute the human gene pool, to thwart the coming of the Messiah. You see, the first gospel message, remember we called this the proto-first evangelium gospel was in Genesis 3.15, where Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bruise his heel, but Jesus would crush his head with the death blow. Satan knew what that meant. So his goal, his end game, is to pollute the gene pool and not allow Messiah to be born. And he almost was successful down to eight People left on earth. Eight people, Noah and his family. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, we see that, that God always has a remnant. He always has someone that He will use. Now, you are the remnant. Believe me, you are the few. You are the few of the few that come and listen to a teaching like this. A few. And I'll tell you, when you get down to eight people, left on earth, and God hasn't annihilated it yet, that's the patience of God. That's the amazing, astounding patience of God. Now, what is the destiny of these angels? Well, Jude says they're in everlasting chains and judgment. And if you would, turn to 2 Peter, well, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Just trust me. You can trust me. I've never been off before. If you want to connect, trust me, it's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, which is Tartarus, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And notice the connection of these angels, the next verse. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. This is right in connection with those with Noah's time. So I believe that Genesis chapter 6 is very much referring the sons of God are dealing with angels. Demonic angels have left their their proscribed area. What is the destiny of these angels? Everlasting chains and darkness. In verse 6, Jude says he has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And I want to, to take you on a little journey. These angels are confined in prison. Anyone that separates themselves from God will ultimately be in a prison, a confinement. Watch this. 1 Peter 3.19 says this. When Jesus died, he went down into the grave and he preached. Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. They were confined in prison. See, remember... At that time, the grave was separated into paradise and torment. Paradise was Abraham's bosom. Paradise was great and wonderful. Paradise was emptied when Jesus was resurrected, when Jesus ascended into heaven. Torment is still there. The prison is still there. People who died today outside of Christ, that is their holding area until the great white throne judgment, their ultimate destiny is the lake of fire. So with that stated, that, that, that thing about prison, the spirit of unbelievers goes to a place that is a prison. Luke 16 calls this torment. Now, the prison for fallen angels, the prison where fallen angels are kept who left their own abode is Tartarus, 2 Peter 2.4. And this is the deepest abyss of Hades. This is the darkest of darkest of Hades. Probably the Genesis Genesis 6 fallen angels abode. That's where they are. Now, there's a second place where fallen angels exist, and that is called the abyss or the bottomless pit. Now, some people believe these are temporary areas of of confinement, and the reason they think that is because this is where Satan dwelt for a thousand years and then was released for a short time. The final prison is called Gehenna, and that's the lake of fire, and it's the final destination of all those who have rebelled against God. They are cast at the end of the world, into into Gehenna, the lake of fire. All fallen angels, all unbelieving men, how sad, because that place was not created for humanity. It was created for the devil and his angels. No human needs to go there. No human needs to go there. God has provided a rescue. The devil is there. It will be there. The Antichrist, the false prophet, all in rebellion against God. This is their final destination. They will be destroyed, but not cease to exist. Ruined, no longer usable for their intended purpose. Now contrast this with those who believe, who simply believe the gospel message. All believers will go to heaven. The second they breathe their last breath. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 8 say this: So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with our Lord. Folks, that's the hope that we have. That's our blessed hope. We're all passing from this. This is all temporary stuff right here. It's going to be burned up and not exist anymore. We are moving on. We are moving on. Just think about this. Heaven is a real place with real people. And the centrality of heaven is Jesus Christ. It's not my aunt's. It's not my uncle's. It's not my mommy and my daddy. I get to see them again. It's going to be great. I get to see my friends. But the centrality of heaven is Jesus. So when somebody says, I went to heaven, an out-of-body experience, and I saw my Uncle Fred, forget that. Forget it, It's not Uncle Fred, as you're going to see. Your first face is Jesus Christ. Man, can't you imagine? And I've said it before. I'm just picturing it. Great big arms. Welcome home. Can you just, and he just embraces you. Oh, what a, I get shivers. There is nothing better than thinking about the moment that we will see his face and hear him say, welcome home. You made it. This is, you're you're here. Now, this is reality. This is reality. We will be there one day. Now, who will ultimately judge these fallen angels? Do you know who will judge? I heard somebody say it. Yes, 1 Corinthians 6.3 6, says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? You know what that tells me? We, humanity, is made a little lower than the angels now. But, oh, when we're glorified, it's all going to be different. The whole structure is going to be different. And we are going to be judging these angels. What, a, what an incredible thing. God judges rebellious people. God judges rebellious angels but you know what else he judges an example number 3 verse 7 God judges rebellious lifestyles he does and it's the sadness of that that's so bad but anyway verse 7 as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, of course, this is not popular today to mention anything about the homosexual agenda, but if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. The focus is Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. And again, most associate Sodom and Gomorrah with rampant homosexuality, and that's true. But in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48, we see the sins of Sodom are more than just sexual immorality. They were pride, fullness of food, the abundance of idleness. They did not strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty, and they committed abominations before me, and I took them as I saw fit. So they were much more than, they were more than homosexuality, but I think those abominations was the last straw for Sodom and Gomorrah. The last straw the backdrop to this destruction of Sodom we see in Genesis chapter 18. When you have three men, I think two of them are angels and one of them is a Christophany, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And he's walking in and they're going to tell Abraham what is going to happen to Sodom. Should we tell him? And they tell him. They're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham intervenes and he says, Oh, will you destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? Will you not save that city for 50 people? And you heard the whole thing. Then they went down to 45, and then he went down to 40 and 35. They're all the way down to 10. Yes, I'll save it for 10 people. Remember the heart of God, folks. Remember the heart of God whenever you're talking about judgment. God's heart is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should perish, but turn and live? That's his heart to Sodom. That's his heart to anybody walking in rebellion. Turn and live. And by the way, if he tells you to turn and live, do you not think he gives you the ability to turn and live? If he's given you the command, he's given you the ability. In Genesis 19, 4 through 11, we see what happens. One of the people disappears. You have the two angels, I think that's Jesus. You have the two angels go into the city, and the two angels uh, must have been just manly men, as handsome as could be. They're walking into this depraved city, and these men of the city. Old and young gather around in verse 4 to try to assault them. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Now the homosexual agenda will say they just wanted to be hospitable. No, they wanted to know. They wanted to have sex with these guys. That's what exactly what this was. This was a homosexual relationship, and it was evil. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. Doesn't that give you a tip off that we're not there for friendliness? See, I have two daughters. This is not Lot's stellar performance by Lot, by any stretch of the imagination. This isn't something he can stand up and say, oh, I'm proud of myself for this. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let them bring them out to you that you may do to them as you wish, only do not do to these men. See, there's something called eastern hospitality. And in the east, you protect your your visitor at all costs, even at a cost of your life. So in a way, he's, he's, he's adhering to that, but this is pretty perverted way to do that. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you. Then with them, so they pressed hard against the man, Lot. They're coming at Lot. They want to throw him out of the way and get to these men. But the angels reach out their hands, pulled Lot into the house, and what happens next is an astounding thing. They get blinded, blinded. But in their blindness, this urge is so great, this perversion is so great, they're still in their blindness trying to get into the house, find the doorknob to get in. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That is an astounding thing to me. You know the rest of the story. They're going to escape the city. Lot tells his family, run for our lives. The sons-in-laws don't believe. Him. They think he's joking. They think he's joking. In verse in verse 14. So the two daughters, the mom and Lot, run. Don't look back. Whatever you do, of course, she looks back mom looks back, Lot's wife, and turns into a pillar of salt. And the, and the whole thing is destroyed. Jude suggests this. The main reason for their destruction was not pride, was not gluttony or leisure, not helping the poor. These are all sins for sure. But the last straw, they gave themselves over to sexual immorality, just like the fallen angels. They left their domain. They left their abode. They left their proscribed area going after strange flesh and leaving their proper domain, their order. Why is homosexuality such a big deal to God? Why is it such a big deal to God? Isn't Jesus just about love? Isn't Jesus, doesn't he just want me to find my soulmate, someone that I can be with? doesn't matter the sex as long as it's love. That is from the pit of hell. That is not from God. That is not from God. Homosexually is wrong. Why? Because it perverts God's order for the family. In Genesis chapter 1, we read these words, 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. Then he blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Now, who can be fruitful and multiply? A man and a woman. A man and a woman. Not the same sex. In chapter 2, it just gives gives more clarification on how this whole thing came together with Adam and Eve. Adam could not find somebody that was suitable, like all the other animals in the kingdom. So God put him to sleep, took out his rib and created out of the man a woman, Isha. Isha's man, Isha is woman. It's soft root. It's a soft part. It's completes man. This It's completer. It's, it's comparable to him. The man is not to rule as some some dictatorial king over his bride. He is to be tender with her and gentle with her and to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of this sin. In Leviticus 18, there was a law against sexual immorality, adultery, incest, child sacrifice, bestiality, homosexuality. All these things are condemned. All punishable by death in Leviticus 20. Romans chapter 1 elucidates on this also. Nowhere in Scripture is there any wiggle room for misinterpreting God's order for the family. Nowhere in Scripture. You cannot twist this to make it say what it doesn't say. Homosexuality is wrong because God says it's wrong. Remember, when God is taken out of a culture, false gods will fill the vacuum. And people will do whatever they want to do. Remember, remember judges? People did what was right in their own eyes. No absolute truth. I'll just make up my own truth. Remember, it's a heart issue, folks. It's a heart issue. The cure is to get a new heart. The cure is salvation. Don't miss this. They give, in Jude 7 says, given themselves over, given themselves over to sexual immorality. That's pornea. Any sexual act outside of the marriage covenant is prohibited by God. Within the marriage covenant, we can enjoy one another, we can enjoy our husband and our wives together. We, that intimacy is to be there. God created that so we could have offspring and, and to enjoy each other. But hear this. For anyone trapped in any sin, whether it's homosexuality or any sin, it could be gluttony, lust, jealousy, vanity, greed, pride, gossip. The whole the list is innumerable. Don't give yourself over to it and give license to it that it's okay. You can be in the struggle against Can homosexuals be Christians? Yes, they can but you cannot live the lifestyle. You can struggle with the sin, just like we all struggle with some sort of sin, but you cannot give in to the lifestyle and give license to it and say, it's okay, it's the way I'm created. God wants me to be with my soulmate. That is wrong. That is wrong. We hear that over and over and over. Stay in the fight. Don't give in to your sin. Don't give in to your urges. Romans 8.13 says this putting to death the deeds of the body. Galatians 5:16 walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans 13:14 put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. But I want to give you a rescue verse. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Now this speaks to every one of us here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 God's great rescue verse. Tell me if this isn't just the most terrific thing. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The question of the Corinthian church. They were way off. They were off on everything. He's addressing these issues. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, We'll inherit the kingdom of God. He could have kept going. He just stopped there. You got the message. We'll inherit the kingdom of God. And then this, this is so profound. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You know what that is? Set apart. You were set apart from that sin. You did not give in to that sin. You were You, you fought against it. You were set apart from it. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our Lord. We have all been saved out of something. None of us can, can, can strut around here like we're some sort of pure thing. We are all fallen, depraved people. The thing is we must realize that we have issues and deal with them and not say, hey, that's just the way I was made. Can't help that. Just going to give in to it. No, stay in the fight. God judges rebellious people. He judges rebellious angels. He judges rebellious lifestyles. We Remember this, God's cry to all humanity. Caught in sin's trap, turn and live. Turn and live. God judges rebellion. When you think about judgment, always, always, always remember the heart of God. He doesn't do this willingly or gleefully. His plea is to turn and live. There's a great verse in, in, in Psalm One o three, that that is very helpful. One o three eight. It says this: The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding love. Hasn't He proven that to you? Look at if you were if you were God, you'd have wiped yourself out a long time ago. You would. We weren't. We weren't deserving of it. He is gracious and compassionate with us. Verse ten says this: He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. He's mercied us. He mercies and mercies and mercies us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's pretty high, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us. East is from the west. You never have to live in the remorse or the, the trap of being I, I was in that sin. I can't, I can't get over the emotional disaster that that caused my life. Look at. when God forgives you, you put those things behind, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. we press on towards. Don't get caught in, in no man's land that I can never make it. Oh no, That is in the past. You press on towards the goal to win the prize. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear he, pity, he knows what it's like. He knows our frame. Isn't this great? And he remembers that we are dust. Now that we think we're big stuff, we are dust. <laughs> That's the reality of it. Hey, just to review. Example number one, God judges rebellious people. He, restored, he destroyed those in Israel who did not believe. They were no longer usable. They did not fulfill their intended purpose. And when Jesus is rejected, ultimately that person will be destroyed. What a tragedy. Example number two, God judges rebellious angels, even the angelic realm, who left their proper domain, who left their abode, who left the area where God says, hey, you can function in this area. God is sovereign over his creation, including the demonic realm. Fallen angels can only operate in their prescribed boundaries. Example number three is God judges rebellious lifestyles. Now remember, we have prescribed boundaries in our lifestyle. We can't go beyond certain things. It is improper to leave our normal abode. And remember, confess and turn, confess and turn from your sin. That's the heart of God. William Barclay says this in closing. In a sense, it is true to say that all preaching within the Christian church is not so much bringing bringing to men new truth but confronting them with the truth they already know, but have forgotten or are disregarding. Jude chooses his examples to make clear that even if a man received the greatest privileges, he may still fall away into disaster. Even those who have received the greatest privileges from God cannot consider themselves safe. Although, he goes on to say, if one is genuinely saved, Key word, genuinely saved. Genuinely saved. He cannot lose his salvation, but must be on constant watch against the mistaken things. Be on constant watch about those things that may creep into your life, to suck you away. Remember God's heart, folks. Turn and live. Turn and live. That's his heart to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study these three things, these three examples of unbelief. And so, Father, I am so grateful to you that you provided a way for each group that if we would only believe and follow your precepts and your ways, we are safe. We are safe in the arms of God. When we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe in him and receive him as our Savior, we are safe in the arms of God. And I pray today that we will take this teaching seriously, that things that we are dabbling in that are not of you will cast away, that we will put those things behind and press on towards the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be a journey of maturity. Lord, we have learned it's not perfection but direction. Help us to go in the right direction towards Jesus, to be more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ, and to become less and less like old me. Thank you for this time to study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.